Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll be hearing part four and the final installment of the murder of Belinda Temple. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. You've heard the details of the day of Belinda's murder and the few days after, but in today's episode, you'll be hearing about everything that has happened since, 22 years worth. In previous episodes, we learned that even though the house appeared to have been broken into, nothing seemed to be missing. Sure, glass was broken, a TV was off its stand, and drawers were opened, but jewelry boxes were left untouched, nothing was taken from the plate of jewelry laying out in the bedroom, and the jewelry Belinda was wearing when she was killed was still on her body when she was found. Well, two days after her murder, court documents on find law state that David gave farmers insurance a call, they'd seen a thing or two, and they were about to see a third. David wanted to report that 10 pieces of jewelry were missing, all belonging to Belinda. Three pairs of earrings, two necklaces, and two watches. It seems odd that a burglar would steal only Belinda's jewelry, but it's even more strange that they'd only steal jewelry given to her by David's mom. Because according to those court documents, most if not all of that jewelry David claimed to be missing had been given to Belinda by his mother. But while David was making sure the insurance company was aware of all of this, he certainly didn't seem to be concerned about keeping the police up to date, you know, if this was in fact true. The police didn't find out about this supposedly missing jewelry until January 26th, 15 days later, when they were watching the news. Law enforcement actually had to send a letter to David's attorney asking for an itemized list of what David was claiming to be missing. Once they got it, they went to work trying to make sure that every pawn shop in the area knew what to be on the lookout for, but not a single one of those items was ever recovered. As time ticked by, Valentine's Day approached, and this was going to be the first Valentine's Day David had spent without Belinda in the past eight years. So what did he wind up doing? If you guessed that he sent flowers to his mistress, you would be correct. In fact, by March, they were in a full-fledged relationship. So much for that story about him getting drunk and kissing a woman while hunting. This guy had started an affair three months prior to his wife's murder. His mistress called it off five days prior to the murder. He texted his mistress that he was falling in love with her three days prior to his wife's murder. He called his friends to make sure that his mistress was okay shortly after the murder, sent flowers to the mistress a little over a month later, and by month two, she was no longer his mistress and was instead his whole ass girlfriend a relationship that he did a better job hiding after the murder than he did prior. By April of 1999, law enforcement was ready to hold a grand jury to try and indict David and Belinda's murder. So on the 7th, one was held. Quentin testified, and while his wife wasn't scheduled to testify, court documents state that she was actually called to the stand as well. It was a long and stressful day for both of them, so they headed straight home from the hearing. When they got there, the phone rang. Quentin's wife answered, and it was none other than David. He wanted to know what she had told the grand jury. Now, she was shook because she didn't even know that she was going to be testifying that day. So how did David know? And how did he find out so quickly? I mean, they had just gotten home. 
Quentin's wife told David that they weren't supposed to talk about all this, so David asked to speak to Quentin. David then asked Quentin the same question, what did he tell the grand jury, and Quentin simply told him that he'd told the truth. To which, according to court documents, David said, you know, you need to keep your mouth shut. The whole thing made everyone feel a little uneasy, but it was only going to get worse. A few weeks after that call, Quentin was driving to meet his wife at work when he noticed David's truck behind him. Quentin decided to stray away from his usual route to see if it was just a coincidence or if David was following him. And lo and behold, David was in fact following Quentin. Before Quentin could make it to his wife, David stopped his truck, walked over to Quentin, and asked him what he was saying to the police. Again, Quentin told David that he was only telling the police the truth, to which, according to court documents, David said, You keep your damn mouth shut. If you thought Quentin was the only person David decided to follow, you would be wrong. Around this same time, Quentin's wife was driving to work. There's something about this route that David seems really fond of. But anyway, she was driving to work when she saw David's truck pull up beside her. Creeped out as fuck, she sped up, but David continued to follow her. Quentin's wife was able to make it to her work where she grabbed her gun and ran inside. Court documents state that David did stop after a short period of time when she got there, but left shortly thereafter. As far as I can tell, the grand jury did not decide to indict David at that time, but that didn't mean that they couldn't try again later. Three months after the grand jury and the following of Quentin and his wife, David's father finally found out about David and his mistress-turned-non-mistress relationship. He had managed to keep it hidden from him for four months. When David's brother got wind of this new relationship, his wife, David's sister-in-law, got pretty pissed off and, according to court documents, didn't speak to David for months. David and Heather's relationship trucked right along and she became a staple in his and Evan's life. Two years to the month Belinda was killed, in January of 2001, David asked Heather to marry him. Just five months after that, they tied the knot. David was now married to the woman he had had an affair with, and she was now little Evan's stepmother. In the years following, between 2001 and 2004, police followed every lead that they could. Thinking that David might have been able to ditch the murder weapon in that gap of time between Brookshire Brothers and the Home Depot, they scoured every inch of that area for a discarded 12-gauge shotgun. They even sent divers into different bodies of water, but they came up totally empty-handed. There's no matching ballistics to a shotgun shell and no shell was recovered from the scene, but they knew that the murder weapon would have had to have gotten some blowback in it. And blowback is caused by a vacuum effect on a barrel of a gun when it's fired. So basically, even though they couldn't test the grooves of a bullet to see if it had been fired from any specific gun, they could test the barrel for Belinda's DNA. Court documents state that while David didn't have a 12-gauge shotgun registered to him, his brothers did, though it doesn't seem like David would have had access to either of them at the time of the murder. That being said, Quentin did state that he and David talked about hunting and different weapons on several occasions, noting that David used to check the local sports section of the paper for gun advertisements. 
According to Quentin, David even mentioned that the two of them should get their concealed carry permits a few months prior to Belinda's murder. The police department collected as many 12-gauge shotguns that they could find in the area, but none of them could be tied to Belinda's murder. And that included two shotguns tied to Belinda's next-door neighbors. In the process of the investigation, police started looking into a teenage boy who lived next door. We'll call him Reed. Generally, I wouldn't change a name, but this kid was a minor at the time and doesn't need this following him for the rest of his life, at least not from me. When Belinda was murdered, news stations rushed to the scene to report on it, and in that 2020 episode, you can see several students of Belinda's who came by to pay their respects and leave flowers. One of the students interviewed was this neighbor, Reed. According to a release from the Houston Police Officers Union, when Reed was first interviewed about Belinda's murder, he said that he was at school when it happened. But that wasn't true. I mean, technically, from what I can tell, his school would have let out around 2.45 p.m., so he definitely wouldn't have been in school, but he definitely, definitely wouldn't have been in school because Reed had actually skipped his last class that day. Police began looking into him because, one, he was a neighbor, and two, it was plausible from the outside looking in that he might have had a reason to hold a grudge against Belinda. See, Belinda had taught him in a special education class and had contacted his parents on several different occasions. Because they lived next door to one another, she would just go to their house to talk to them. Prior to her murder, she had gone to Reed's house to have a chat with his parents about how many days of school he had skipped. I think I read somewhere that it was upwards of 100 classes. According to 2020, Reed's parents wound up taking away his driving privileges. Obviously, that might cause Reed to be a little upset, but he wasn't a stranger to trouble or getting grounded, so this wasn't exactly a monumental event for him. I mean, she had gone to his house several times before for various similar issues. While it seemed like Reed's troubled history with Belinda might give him some teenage reason to hold a grudge, he really didn't seem to. When interviewed, he seemed genuinely shocked that anything like this could happen, let alone to Belinda. And according to the Houston Press, he didn't harbor any ill will towards her. He said that she was a good teacher who cared about him and that she was just doing her job. But words are just that, so the police dug into his whereabouts on the day of Belinda's murder. We know that Reed had skipped seventh period that day, so we'll start there. According to court documents, he left the school with a buddy and the two of them went back to Reed's house. By 2.45 p.m., Reed was taking his friend back to his own house. They guesstimated that it was 2.45 because they saw buses leaving the school on the way there. Once Reed dropped off friend number one, he stopped by friend number two's house before returning back to his own house at 3.30. Once Reed got home, he called friend number three and told him to come over. Friend number three did, and he brought friend number four with him. At this point, Reed and friends number three and four were all at Reed's house. The three of them then got into a car and drove to friend number five's house. It looks like they might have been trying to buy some weed because court documents state that when friend number five said he didn't have any, Reed and friends three and four went back to Reed's house. They got back between four and 4.20. With the quest for weed a bust, they decided to drive down to the Quickie Mart and buy some cigarettes. It was a quick trip, so they got back to Reed's house around 4.30. Once they got back, friends number three and four left, and Reed changed his clothes and took a nap on the couch. Unfortunately for him, taking a nap when your parents at work is a shit alibi. Reed didn't wake up from his nap until 6 p.m. when his dad got home from work, and that's when he noticed the police tape going up around Belinda's house. While the nap alibi for that hour and a half is a shit one, 
Police talked to Reed on three different occasions, and unlike their take on David's interview, court documents state that detectives said Reed was cooperative and that they were satisfied with the information he'd given them. He was eventually cleared of any involvement in Belinda's murder. A detective told 2020 that they investigated Reed more than anyone else they looked into. According to a statement Belinda's dad gave Nancy Grace, no matter what police did, everything always pointed back to David. Time continued to tick by, and David decided that it was time to move out of that once-perfect house in the corner, so he asked for help from friends to get everything packed up and out of the house. While they were packing, a friend noticed a box that was slightly open. When they looked inside, they saw shotgun shells. According to Craig Maliso, a former reporter for the Houston Press, this box containing shotgun shells was about five feet away from where Belinda was murdered. According to Maliso, when friends asked David what the shotgun shells were from, David said that he didn't know exactly where they came from, but that they were from prior use. Almost six entire years passed with no charges in the murder of Belinda Temple, but all of that was about to change. On November 30th, 2004, while David Temple was driving to work, he was pulled over by the police and finally taken into custody. A detective told the Houston Chronicle that David had no reaction to the arrest. No one knew exactly what had led police to finally feel like they had enough to charge David, but the outlet noted that it was due to recent evidence. A lot of people wondered if Heather had said something to the police that sealed the deal, but it looks like it was a lot more damning than that. When police were processing the crime scene almost six years prior, Nancy Grace's headline news reported that they collected one of David's shirts from a downstairs utility room, a warm-up jacket from the master bedroom, and a pair of tennis shoes found outside the back door. While no blood spatter was ever found on any of David's clothes, the outlet reports that a scientist with the FBI determined that the shirt, the jacket, and one of the tennis shoes tested positive for gunshot residue that was consistent with the residue found on Belinda. If you're wondering why it took almost six years to make an arrest based on this, it's because according to the Houston Chronicle, the shirt and jacket weren't sent off to the FBI for testing until 16 months after the murder. The shoes weren't tested until April of 2003, and no one seems to know why it took so long. Belinda's family was notified about David's arrest a few hours later and told the outlet, we're very excited at this point. It's been a long time coming. We can't say too much because we've got a trial ahead of us yet, but I hope justice will be served. Belinda's father added, In some ways, I'm sorry the law for unborn babies wasn't in effect when this took place, because it would have been treated as a double homicide. In my opinion, it was a double homicide. This arrest felt like a long-awaited step in the right direction, but to everyone's shock, the Houston Chronicle reports that David was only given a $30,000 bond, which he posted, and that meant that he would be a free man until his trial, which could take years. Three months after David's arrest, Nancy Grace was premiering her first episode of Headline News, and the case that she decided to cover was Belinda's. This series of interviews is about to be heavily cited because it is fucking golden. 
In Belinda's parents' interview with Nancy Grace, they talked about how David had never gone on TV pleading for information and how he, nor his family, had ever offered up any money for the reward for information. Other people had, including businesses, but not David. Belinda's parents also talked about the fact that they hadn't been allowed to see their grandson in roughly four years. While Nancy Grace was interviewing Belinda's parents, she found out that earlier that day, David's family had held an event to make their first public statement in six years. Where did they do it? On Belinda Temple's grave. Standing at Belinda's grave, they proclaimed David's innocence and said that they were looking forward to the justice system seeing that. Nancy Grace was able to get an interview with David's family, and when asked why they picked Belinda's grave of all places to hold this event, they told her that that little place of real estate is very precious to us, saying we're the ones who take care of it. Real estate? We're calling Belinda and baby Aaron's gravesite a piece of real estate now? And does the fact that David's family is claiming to be the ones who take care of it make it any less cringy to hold a proclamation of innocence event there? When asked if David was at this graveside event, David's family said that he wasn't because he was in church at the time. I mean, okay. Later in the interview, David's brother told Nancy Grace that David would have been there had they let him go. Got it. Nancy Grace asked David's family if they or their church had ever offered up any kind of reward for information pertaining to Belinda's murder. They told her, no, not directly, which seemed like a response that needed a lot more explaining. So Nancy Grace asked them if they'd offered up a reward in some other way. And they said, no, we didn't offer a reward. I guess we were relying on the justice system to do that and to investigate. So no, the answer is no, not directly and not indirectly. When Nancy Grace asked them why Belinda's parents hadn't been able to see Evan in nearly four years, they said it was because her parents had never requested to see him, though Belinda's parents disagreed. They said that David had an unlisted phone number that he refused to give them and that they'd emailed him asking if they could see Evan, but alas, they still hadn't been able to see their grandson in roughly four years. As the interview continued, Nancy Grace moved on to the day of Belinda's murder and little Evan being sick. However, David's family corrected her and said, no, he was not sick with a fever. He had a degree of fever. He said that the daycare wouldn't allow him to stay, so he had to be picked up. Seems like an odd development considering the fact that they had made him soup for Belinda to come pick up after work and that they then called her after she got home to check on Evan. But what do I know? Nancy Grace started wrapping up the interview and was saying some closing statements for the show, but David's family wasn't done. They interjected, saying, is that all we get to say? And hot damn, they should have left it at that. But Nancy Grace told them to go ahead. What was once going to be a pretty low-key interview was about to turn into a shit show. David's family went on to make a statement that felt rehearsed AF saying, I think it's very important that people understand exactly how much we loved Belinda and how much she loved us. She burst into our lives like a bolt of lightning. We never had to decide, are we going to like this girl or is she the right girl for David? David chose Belinda. Belinda chose to be a temple. She chose to be with us on every opportunity that she had, every holiday. Nancy Grace chimed in saying that she had no doubt that they loved Belinda, but David's family interrupted again with, will you let me finish my statement? 
This statement they proceeded to make sounded more like a response than a continuation, but they said, If you agree with how much I loved her and the fact that when I stepped into that closet where she was murdered six weeks after her death, I had a heart attack from grief. That's how much I loved her. And do you think that I'm here today to defend her murderer? No, I'm not, because my son had nothing to do with it. And this is when Nancy Grace came in hot. Remember, this interview could have been over. Nancy Grace told them, well, if your son had nothing to do with it, sir, could you explain to me why his arrest affidavit says that the gunshot residue on her body matched the gunshot residue on his clothes? They didn't know about this yet, and oh my gosh, I bet they wish they could rewind time and hop off this interview five minutes ago when they had the chance. David's family's only response was that, that's the first time I've heard that. If so, it sounds like someone might have been leaving out some important information. Nancy Grace told them to simply take a look at the last paragraph of David's arrest affidavit. After David's family's interview wrapped up, it was time for Nancy Grace to interview David's defense attorney, who was frankly one of the top defense attorneys in the country. He had previously represented David Koresh, the cult leader involved in the siege on Waco, and the Robert Durst. When Nancy Grace asked him about the gunshot residue results, he said that law enforcement wouldn't send him the samples so that he could test them independently. He said that the results had come from a questionable source, that source being the FBI lab. After this interview, things went pretty dormant in the news department. Everyone just waited for the trial to begin. In 2006, it was postponed until 2007, after the Houston Chronicle says there was an issue with a state witness who was set to testify about the gunshot residue. As it turns out, the scientist with the FBI who originally tested David's shirt, jacket, and shoes was no longer a certified gunshot residue expert at the time his case was finally scheduled to go to court, so they were going to have to find someone else to testify about the results. The new scientist, however, wasn't comfortable testifying to the work of someone else and wanted to run her own independent tests. The new scientist said that she didn't find any gunshot residue on David's shirt or shoe and that she couldn't say if the gunshot residue that she did find on David's jacket was the same gunshot residue found on Belinda. In arguments prior to court, David's defense attorney argued that the FBI lab shared a ventilation system with a firing range and that the gunshot residue from the firing range could have transferred through the ventilation system. As far as I've been able to find, no cases have been thrown out due to this shared ventilation system, but with all things combined, the judge decided that the gunshot residue could not be brought up at David's trial, which was a huge hit. In October of 2007, David's trial finally began, and the prosecutor was none other than Kelly Siegler, the one from the show Cold Justice. With David's defense attorney and Kelly Siegler, this trial was like an episode of Game of Thrones. According to ABC News, the state's theory was that David killed Belinda before he left, that he had time to dispose of the murder weapon between Brookshire Brothers and Home Depot, and that he then staged the burglary when he got home, with Evan still in the garage. Everything we've gone over until now was presented in court, minus the gunshot residue, but friends and family also testified. 
According to 2020, friends testified that after Evan was born, Belinda and David's marriage went south, that he tried to control Belinda and called her derogatory names. According to court documents, he also wasn't a fan of Belinda's family, allegedly calling them crazy and white trash. They said that he didn't want Belinda or Evan to be around them. Quentin testified and said that David didn't want Belinda to come to his high school reunion. For the record, she did wind up coming on the second day, but she had just missed the previous night where David had run into a girl that he used to date and made out with her on a couch. When Quentin asked him if they'd had sex, David told him, no, everything but that. Eventually, Kelly Siegler moved on to recorded conversations. According to Click2 Houston, Siegler asked David's sister-in-law, do you remember a conversation with Quentin's wife where you told her that you thought David killed Belinda? As it turns out, there was also a recorded conversation between David's sister-in-law and Belinda's sister where she said she didn't want anything to do with Heather. David's sister-in-law seemed shocked that the conversations had been recorded and said in court that she was depressed, bitter, and angry when Belinda died and has since forgiven David, adding that she loves Belinda as much as she loved Heather. According to the book Shattered, a book about Belinda's case written by Catherine Casey, David was also recorded. In the recording, David said that he was wearing his watch and his ring when Belinda was killed, and that's why they weren't stolen. But we know that's not true. We know that his watch and ring were left out in that tray in their bedroom. In a conversation with Belinda's sister, Click2 Houston says that David told her that Belinda wouldn't want all this. She'd want us to leave it alone. So wait, he's saying that Belinda wouldn't want anyone to look for the person who killed her and her unborn daughter. Later in David's trial, the court learned that Evan's car seat wasn't just not in David's truck. It was actually in Belinda's car. Either that car seat was never in his truck when he was driving Evan around, as if maybe he was in a rush, or he for some reason quickly took it out of his truck and put it into Belinda's car when he was putting his dog in the garage to let the police in. David actually wound up taking the stand in his own defense, which is a rare occurrence that doesn't usually bode well. And not much came out of his testimony as far as reporting, just that he said that the reason their dog wasn't barking was because the dog was in the garage until he got back, which detectives did not believe. It doesn't sound like the jury believed much of anything David had to say either, because in November of 2007, David was found guilty of murdering his wife and sentenced to life in prison. David made several attempts to appeal his conviction, and one of the appeals stated, Defense appellate contends that the Court of Appeals' over-analysis is far too speculative because it is absurd to believe that during an 18-minute period, he could stage a break-in, commit murder, dispose of the clothing that he was wearing and the murder weapon, and care for his son. Though, the state argued that the appellant had the best opportunity to kill the victim because appellant was the last one to see her alive and that he had the motive because he had fallen in love with another woman. The state further avers that the jury could have believed that the burglary had been staged, that the appellant's trip to various locations was either to create a plausible alibi or for a purpose other than merely to run errands, and that, from the nature of appellant's actions around the time of the murder, he was hiding something. Moreover, the state points out that the appellant had a history of gun usage. The Court of Appeals responded and concluded that the evidence supports a finding that appellant had motive and opportunity to murder Belinda, 
lied about the reason he was driving north of I-10 on the afternoon of the murder and lied about placing Evan in a car seat, had a questionable demeanor immediately following Belinda's death, quickly resumed his relationship with Heather following Belinda's death, confronted Quinton and Tammy regarding their statements to police and the grand jury, Appellant's house was staged to appear as if a burglary had occurred, and Appellant and his family were untruthful regarding their shotguns. While each piece of evidence lacks strength in isolation, the consistency of the evidence and the reasonable inferences drawn therefrom provide the girders to strengthen the evidence and support a rational jury's finding the elements beyond a reasonable doubt. While this case was very much based on circumstantial evidence, I mean, no DNA or fingerprints would have meant much of anything considering David lived in the home Belinda was killed in, case law from Johnson v. State was brought up. It states, in circumstantial evidence cases, it is not necessary that every fact and circumstance point directly and independently to the defendant's guilt. It is enough if the conclusion is warranted by the combined and cumulative force of all the incriminating circumstances. But the appeal attempts continued. According to Heavy, David even tried his hand at claiming that he had ineffective counsel, which is laughable considering who his attorney had previously defended and that appeal was obviously denied. That being said, though, one of David's appeals actually worked. The defense claimed that the prosecution had withheld reports that pointed to the next-door teenage neighbor, Reed. But Craig Masolo, formerly of the Houston Press, really ripped into the claim of withholding evidence in an extensive piece that he published in 2015. I'll link it in Belinda's highlight. In his article, he wrote that the defense had two months of unfettered access to the case file. Regardless, David's conviction was ultimately overturned and he was granted a new trial. In July of 2019, David's second trial began, but just four days into it, Heather filed for divorce. For a second time, David was found guilty of murdering his pregnant wife and his sentencing was left up to the jury but the jury couldn't come to an agreement on how much time he should serve. ABC News reports that six jurors were stuck on a sentence between 30 and 40 years, while four jurors were adamant that he received life in prison. They were deadlocked, and I shit you not, a sentencing mistrial was declared. An entirely new jury was set to sit through a re-examination of evidence in March of 2020, They wouldn't be determining his guilt or innocence. They would have just been reviewing the state's evidence and deciding the appropriate sentence. But COVID happened. David's sentencing has been delayed to this day, and he remains in jail awaiting a hearing date. As this case progresses and this new jury decides David's fate, I will be sure to update you. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Belinda's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, which is today. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I will be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.